Hey everybody, it's Will. I just wanted to check in before the episode to let you know that unfortunately we had some technical difficulties while recording this week's episode, so the audio is a little bit funky, and I just wanted to apologize personally for that. We've sorted it out. Shouldn't be an issue in the future, but I wanted to let you know before you started listening. Got that out of the way. We're good to go. Hello to the folks at Square Apron. We're doing our best. We'll have some more of that DreamWorks content coming for you soon. In the meantime, we've got a premium side of Weg Tent to tide you over. It's been too long. So enjoy the episode, and we'll see you next week for The Shining, which is on Hulu. So check it out. So, Mark. Yes? I think we need to talk about musicals. I'm down. Specifically, 21st century movie musicals. Because the movie we're talking about this week, I think, really helps to inspire studios to invest much more heavily in musicals than they were in the decades before. Oh, for sure. Because between Chicago in 2002 and Moulin Rouge the year before, suddenly musicals have this respectability and cachet that belies the kind of embarrassment people had had about them before that. Yeah, people always talked about loving movie musicals kind of on the hush-hush. It wasn't like a thing that if you were a serious film enthusiast, you were like, I love the movie musicals. Or if you did, it was like old school westerns, where it was this genre that had been really popular in, say, the 30s, the 40s, into the 50s, reached a kind of bloated, caricatured state, and then fallen by the wayside. It wasn't necessarily something that could speak to modern-day ideas. Yeah, it was kind of a time capsule that just existed in a perfect bubble and was dead. So I thought we could kick off by talking about some of our favorite movie musicals of the post-Chicago era. So one of the first that came to mind is a movie that I love, and one that I find really interesting because their best song, the one that won the Oscar, their most famous, comes first and is very early in the movie, and then is never sung again, which is something I haven't really seen in a lot of musicals. So I don't remember what year it came out, but in Once, I didn't realize when I first saw it, because I heard them sing the song at the Oscars first. Falling Slowly happens like 20 minutes into the movie. So you know Falling Slowly necessitated a rules change at the Oscars, because John Carney had been trying for so long to get that movie made that A lot of the music had been written, and they had shot chunks of it, but they couldn't get a distributor. And in the meantime, Glenn Hansard, who wrote a lot of the music, put out an album that had Falling Slowly on it. And at the time, Oscar Rules said that a song had to appear for the first time in association with a movie. And Falling Slowly had been written for once, but because of these distribution issues, the movie hadn't come out yet. The Academy rewrote the rules specifically to allow Falling Slowly to be eligible for Best Original Song. It's a really good song, and I feel like it makes sense because it was written for the movie. It is an integral part of that movie. It doesn't really exist as wholly and as well outside the movie, in my opinion. Right, so now the rules say that it has to be written for the movie, exactly like you said. What about Hairspray? I forgot about that. I haven't seen that. I have never seen Hairspray. You haven't seen it? I used to watch it every Friday night. I really want to watch the original. You should. Because, you should watch the original. Yeah. I haven't seen any movies by him, one. and I really want to, but they're hard to find. 
Well, mine is intimately related to um, Once, because mine is Begin Again, featuring Hunk, Mark Ruffalo, and Snaggletooth leading lady, Kira Knightley. <laughs> okay, so my favorite musical of the last couple of years is also a John Carney one. It's Sing Street, which is a masterpiece. Yeah. Clearly, John Carney has this on lock. Yeah. <laughs> Something about us. He's really tapped into. <laughs> He's really gotten us in. Now, to be fair, Sing Street also has an extended musical number that is a riff on Back to the Future, subject of a future two-hour episode of this podcast. These are also all movies that are very subtle musicals, which yes. I find interesting. They're not the traditional musical in the vein of, like, Hairspray. They're movies where the music is kind of woven gently into it. It's Glenn Hansard in his bedroom playing his guitar, not, you know, a big song and dance number. Which I think is interesting, because I think one of the main dividing lines in 21st century musicals is whether or not the music is something that is literally taking place in the text of the movie, or something that is, in a more traditional style, characters so overwhelmed by an emotion that they have to break into song. And these John Carney musicals, fall into the former camp where, in Sing Street, it's all their band singing. Mm -hmm. In something like Chicago, I think it's interesting that all of the music takes place in this almost a dreamscape, yeah. where it's this separate environment that doesn't exist in the main plot of the movie. It's entirely just characters commenting on what is happening. But it's also filmically linked, like, through lighting and stuff to the actual scene that's yes. taking place. Which is one of the things that I think makes Chicago really compelling as a film adaptation of a stage musical. Where one of the challenges that you face whenever you adapt plays to the screen is justifying why it needs to be done that way. Mm -hmm. Like the most simple reason could just be, well, you expose it to a wider audience, which is great. I love the idea of more people getting to see great plays, but hopefully you're doing something with it that cannot be done on this stage. And I think Chicago plays with that really well as it cuts back and forth between these different environments. I think Chicago is the best movie I've seen that, you know, melds the two, adapting the stage version into a movie, but then incorporating elements of the traditional movie musical from like the 40s and 50s, where you get good shots of being on scene of like the dancing, uh, when you're good to mama is just Queen Latifah on a stage singing to an audience, but then you get something like the Cell Block Tango, which starts as a smaller stage production, and then opens up into the giant, like, it has the wall of cells behind it, there's levels of different dancers, and that's very much more Golden Age of musical style of song production in sure, a movie. Almost going back to, like, Busby Berkeley kind of stuff in the 1930s. Right, so th I think it's really cool how they tie all of those elements together, and then it's also just a compelling movie because, you know, the acting is good. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting how Chicago and Moulin Rouge, the year before it, mm -hmm. they really are this pair in terms of their influence, leads to this surge in high-profile musicals in the years after, where we get things like Phantom of the Opera, The Producers, Rent, Dreamgirls, Hairspray, even like Sweeney Todd, which is its own weird thing because it's a Tim Burton project, but still you imagine it getting financed as part of this wave. I mean, even things like Mamma Mia fit into this. And the guys behind Chicago, Bill Condon and Rob Marshall, are at the core of a lot of these productions. 
How many movies did Rob Marshall direct after this? So, since this movie, Rob Marshall has made Memoirs of a Geisha, Nine, which is also a musical, Pirates of the Caribbean 4, In the Woods, and Mary Poppins Returns. And he's also attached to direct the live-action Little Mermaid. Ugh. Sorry. I haven't even seen any of them, and I just am annoyed. I have seen Pirates 4, Into the Woods, and Mary Poppins Returns, all of which are... Eh. Oh, I meant blah, about the live-action Little Mermaid, because I'm over that as a concept. Dumbo is solid. The only other one I saw was Cinderella, which is very pretty to look at, and that's all I have to say for it. I feel like I haven't seen any, so I really shouldn't say this, but none of them have justified their existence beyond making money. And that is their justification to the company, but I just wish that they were able to find something to make money off of that had real merit. Or is, like, original content? Like, that would be cool, too. So I would say Dumbo is the one that most does that. I feel like Dumbo actually has something going on, which is, frankly, a really interesting and weird take of... It's digging into, like, something that is small and sort of wondrous and wholesome and asking when you blow it up to a commercial level can it maintain that is it a good idea so it's weirdly kind of a bizarre critique of disney produced by disney and it's weird how between this and tomorrowland disney keeps giving directors lots of money to question whether walt's vision was a good idea or not so i think dumbo is not a perfect movie I think the kids in it are straight up bad. There are some things that are frustrating, but it does have some ideas in there that are unusual and that are distinct from the original movie. That, I think, that's what you should be doing. And also, Dumbo, the original is 58 minutes, so you have to add something. So if anything was going to get that treatment, it makes sense that it was Dumbo. But I, we've only seen trailers, but I'm hoping at least Aladdin and Lion King might not just be shot-for-shot shot remakes. We at least get weird dad bod buff Will Smith genie out of the Aladdin soon. So that's a thing that's happening. We're definitely getting, like, giant Iago at one point in the trailer for Aladdin. And that's kind of interesting. I don't know what it means. I hope it's weird. That's really my vision for it, because The Lion King doesn't look like it's weird. It looks like it's shot for shot The Lion King. And part of me thinks, because those are more recent and we're a little more connected to them, that they almost are perceived to be more of sacred texts and, like, don't mess with them. The audience knows what The Lion King is. The audience wants The Lion King. Whereas Dumbo is an 80-year-old movie, and people in general probably feel less of a strong connection to the source material. So they feel a little bit more free to mess around with it. Except for my mom, who cries every time she even thinks about the movie Dumbo. I love Dumbo! Dumbo rules! If you just get my mom talking about the scene where Baby Mine, where she just rocks Dumbo in her trunk, my mom will start tearing up. Dumbo's a masterpiece. It's worth noting... The crew from Chicago is involved in those. Bill Condon, who wrote this movie, directed Beauty and the Beast, and is also attached to direct the Dark Universe Bride of Frankenstein movie that I assume will never happen. If any of them happen, I want it to be that one. Yeah, that's right? the only one I want. Because that is the queerest black and white movie I've ever seen. And I mean, That's I'm, a weird movie. That evil doctor is, like, so clearly in love with Frankenstein. 
that's the movie. I mean, the movie is the two of them had an affair, and Frankenstein is being punished by nature for it. Yeah. What a great movie. What a wild ride. It was a weird, weird time. Also, remember what we started this conversation on movie musicals? Yeah, I stand by that. Uh, are there songs in Dumbo? There are not really. Somebody sings Baby Mine, like, playing on a, like, ukulele, but that's it. Okay. So, by my standards, because I believe that ECA is a musical, because it has one <laughs> musical number, then Dumbo's a musical. Dumbo is not a musical. It's a, it's a musical. When I was looking at lists of movie musicals in the 21st century, I was reminded just how much of them are still Disney movies. It was like, Princess and the Frog, Tangled, Frozen, Frozen Moana. All movies I stand by. Yeah. You know, once we got past the Home on the Range and Chicken Little era Disney. I've never seen Home on the Range. I did see Chicken Little in theaters. They are both not good. Yeah. In theaters? You saw that in theaters? Of course I saw Chicken Little in theaters. I used to watch it on VHS every time it was a rainy day. Oh, see, I never paid for a home video version. Yeah, I mean, that was just at school, because that's what we did when it rained. Oh, nice. Because we lived in California. It was the Emperor's New Groove for us. Oh, yeah. It was National Treasure for us. A masterpiece. That's why I've seen that movie, like, 20 times. Every bus ride we took. Now you're talking. National Treasure, Miracle, the perfect bus ride movies. (laughs) They are exciting, but in no way offensive, so they are great for schools. You can turn away from them for a while and come back, and someone's going to tell you what's happening. (laughs) Fair. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is a podcast where we delve deep, I don't know the line, (laughs) We're trying to go off script this week, and Will can't remember his lines. I've never known this line. Remember the Pitch Perfect movies? Yes. That's my dad's favorite movie. I have never also count- seen a Pitch Perfect movie. Pitch Perfect 1 was very fun. Pitch Perfect 2 was boring. Pitch Perfect 3, I did not watch. No. The only thing I know about Pitch Perfect movies is that the second one is one of those rare instances where the sequel outgrosses the original in its opening weekend. Yeah, it was a cable TV movie phenomenon. Pitch Perfect, I think, came on every movie channel a lot, and that's how people watched it. Mm-hmm. And then when Pitch Perfect 2 came out in theaters, people flocked. Again, not having seen Pitch Perfect, it feels like a great TV movie. Paul F. Tompkins talks a lot about how it's the movie that if he ever sees it on TV, he will stop and watch it. That's what my dad does. That's yeah. why he's seen it like 20 times. Speaking of TV movies... Rob Marshall directed the 1999 TV version of Annie, which is the one that I grew up watching a bunch. Is that the one with Patti LuPone as Mrs. Hannigan? Yes, it is. I don't know if I've seen that one. I mostly know the Carol Burnett 80s version. Which I don't think I've ever seen. I basically think of these movies in terms of who plays Mrs. Hannigan, and I feel like that says a lot about me. (laughs) Yeah, because that's the interesting character. The only really fascinating thing about Annie is the way that the musical totally subverts what the original cartoonist believed, because the cartoonist who drew the Little Orphan Annie newspaper comic was like a hardcore 1920s conservative who was so angry about the New Deal that he killed off Daddy Warbucks in the comics in protest, whereas in the stage musical, Annie meets Franklin Roosevelt 
and personally inspires him to start the New Deal. I'm here for it. It's such a wild turn that that musical takes. It also demonstrates the wild turn that the New Deal caused in American politics and culture. Yes. Anyway, this is a podcast where we delve deep into cinematic romances to answer the age-old question. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Are any of them likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or a one-scene flirtation, or if John C. Riley just shows up a couple of times. We're gonna dig in and see what's there. Today, we brought Nick on to complete the trilogy of films that he owns on iTunes. <laughs> so these, to be clear, are Easy A, Last Holiday, the Queen Latifah version, not the 1950s British version. <laughs> And yes. now, this film. <laughs> that really says a lot about me. <laughs> I spent, like, $5 on each of these. That's insane. Where is Queen Latifah's secret cameo in Easy A? <laughs> She's just everywhere. Is yeah. she in the woodchuck suit at some point? <laughs> yes, that's, that's who she is. Queen Latifah would be an incredible addition to Easy A. Yeah, she should be in there instead of Lisa Kudrow. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. She'd be way better. Yeah, but then she would have to be believably married to Thomas Hayden Church. And My second thing was going to be she should be there instead of Thomas Hayden Church, who doesn't want to be in that movie. <laughs> yeah, honestly, keep Lisa Kudrow, swap out Queen Latifah for Thomas Hayden Church, and it would be amazing. Anyway, we are talking about 2002's Best Picture winning film, Chicago, an adaptation of a musical, which isn't based on a play from 1926. The musical was written by a bunch of people, originally directed by Bob Fosse. And yeah, it, was famous- a, it was also partially written by him. It was Bob Fosse with Kender and Epp. Yeah. And then he choreographed the original stage production. And you know, when you watch the movie, it's just like, can you really tell that Fosse was involved? It is absurdly obvious. There's so many jazz hands. So much just slinking across stage is the only word for it. (laughs) Why do they do that? Why do they get so low sometimes? (laughs) Women are just constantly slinking across the stage, and I feel like that's a Fosse signature move. So, like you said, it's originally based on a play from 1926 by Maureen Dallas Watkins, which is based on her work earlier in the 20s as a journalist in Chicago, where she covered two murder cases involving women accused of killing their lovers, and both of the women were acquitted. And so then when she was at Yale Drama School later, she wrote a play about it that got staged and then turned into a silent film the next year. And then in the 70s, Bob Fosse's wife read the play and asked him to turn it into a musical. And so he did that along with Candor and Ebb. And it was well-reviewed and, like, kind of financially successful, but audiences didn't love it. And it wasn't until 1996, when there's a revival of it that's a huge hit, that it then becomes this sensation and the longest-running American musical in both New York and London that kind of gives it the energy to have the movie version of it made that Fosse himself had intended to make in the wake of Cabaret. He was like, ah, I'm making a new musical, and just like I did with Cabaret, I'll make a movie of it too. But then he died, so he didn't. I'd be curious to see what the Fosse version of the movie Chicago would be like, because I think it would be very different. The Cabaret movie is also not... There's a term for musicals where the music is like part of the story versus like people just bursting into song, and it's driving me crazy because I cannot remember it. Diegetic? Di- yeah. Uh, but Cabaret is 
all the songs are on stage, so it's similar to the movie version of Chicago, and I'd wonder if he would have also tried to find a way to make that happen, or if it would be like the musical where people just sing. Anyway, this movie came out in 2002. Just barely. It opened on December 27th. It was sort of one of the ultimate examples of a Miramax slow rollout campaign. This is a little bit after the height of, like, Harvey Weinstein dominating the Oscars in terms of, like, the Shakespeare and Love late 90s situation, but it's not that long after. And it opens December 27th on just 77 screens and does this slow rollout. It doesn't go over a 1,000 screens until February 7th, but it just has this slow rolling building campaign. It eventually makes $170 million. What was the budget? Uh, according to Box Office Mojo, $45 million. So it's an expensive musical. Yeah. Which I think you can see on screen. There's a yeah. lot of stuff going into it. And there's big names in it. Oh, for sure. This oh, is yeah. early 2000s Richard Gere. He's still definitely a big draw. Catherine Zeta-Jones and Renee Zellweger, both at the height of their careers. What happened to Catherine Zeta-Jones? Well, she married Michael Scarn, and then she was killed by Golden Face. <laughs> i refuse to google what she's been doing recently because i want to live in that world that's what i've been told okay according to wikipedia her most recent role was in 2016 she was in a film called dad's army prior to that she was in red 2 side effects broken city her last big movie she was in was rock of ages another movie musical guess she's just retired kind of yeah she hasn't been in a movie in three years she's been doing some tv tv movies oh she was in feud yeah she played olivia de havilland she was in a television movie last year called cocaine godmother according to wikipedia it was on lifetime i think she was the lead what was renee zellweger's last movie was it bridget jones's baby no her last movie was something called here and now which i did not see. She has Judy coming out, though. She's still active. Yeah, that's a big thing she's got coming out. She's playing late career Judy Garland this year. That movie's not scheduled to come out until the fall, but I think it's going to be pretty exciting. It seems like a cool project for her. The picture they released of her in makeup is very impressive. Yeah, so that should be fun to see from her. I like her. She's a good one. Obviously, Queen Latifah was not at the height of her career because it was pre-last pre holiday, holiday, which is the peak. And of course, by virtue of that, it's also pre-Cooking with the Queen, her cooking show with LL Cool J. Yes. Which we are also pre-that. It's still to come. <laughs> she really hasn't peaked yet. It's, oh my God. Oh, wow. Nick hadn't seen the Judy picture. Oh, yeah, it's good stuff. Now, it's worth noting, uh, in terms of Chicago's reception, it just barely opened. It feels like it's harder these days for a movie that does the slow end-of-year rollout to really crack into the Oscars conversation. Like, we see usually one a year get a nomination. This year it was Vice. We had The Post the year before. I think probably the last movie to really pull it off was Hidden Figures and maybe before that American Sniper in terms of maybe getting close into that Best Picture conversation. Mm -hmm. But Chicago not only pulled it off for Best Picture, they also got the Best Supporting Actress win for Catherine Zeta-Jones. Over Best Supporting Actress nominee Queen Latifah. Right, and they got nominations for Renee Zellweger, for John C. Riley, which is a very cool nomination, because mm -hmm. I like that performance a lot. They also get nominations in Adapted Screenplay. They get wins for Editing and for Sound, which is what it was called at the time today. We call it sound mixing. They got a win for art direction. 
Did so they, they get are, costumes? They or did nomination? Well. Yeah, Colleen Atwood won for costume design. That makes sense. An excellent win. I love when Lucy Liu is just in underwear when she's on screen. Like the costume designer was like, "What should we put Lucy Liu in?" I know, fur coat and bra panties and garters. Yeah, of course, Lucy Liu and Tay Diggs in this movie—a nice little set it up foreshadowing. Wow. I never thought about the fact that they knew each other, except they probably were never on set together because Lucy Liu is in the movie for under five minutes. Solo card billing, though. They gave a lot of solo card billing because all of the cell block tango dancers got yeah. their own, which is cool because they do a lot of work in that song. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're great. I particularly like the first one who kills Bernie for his aggressive gum chewing. Uh, that's Susan Meisner. I was thinking about putting her for the person I would date because I liked her energy, but then I remembered <laughs> this is an anti-murder podcast. It's true. My favorite in the Cell Block Tango of the Red Scarves is the poison one, the second one, where she pulls it out of his mouth with her teeth. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Ugh. I love this movie. And then there's always the running into their knife ten mm-hmm. times where they're like all the way across the stage. It's super cool. He ran into my knife. He ran into my knife ten times. <laughs> my one complaint on Chicago is that it wins Best Picture against Gangs of New York, The Hours, The Two Towers, and The Pianist. And this is a year in which my favorite movie of the year is not nominated, which is... 21st century masterpiece, Catch Me If You Can. I haven't seen it yet. Oh. That movie rules. Yeah, forgot about that. I think Christopher Walken gets a supporting actor nomination for it, and he loses to Chris Cooper for adaptation. But, like, that is such underrated Spielberg stuff. We should do it on this show. Yeah, we should. Yeah. We. <laughs> I'm inviting myself back, and we're doing okay, it. Okay, good to know. I've been meaning to watch it, and I saw that you have the DVD, so that was like a moment where I realized I had never seen it. Oh, that DVD is lying around because I just replaced it with a Blu-ray and need to get rid of the DVD. Oh, that makes sense. I think that Two Towers didn't win because they were planning on just giving all of the awards to Return of the King. I think that's definitely part of the the thinking there. Yeah, I stand by the belief that Fellowship and Two Towers didn't win any Oscars because they were like, if we give them all to this one, we'll have to give them all to the next one. Mm -hmm. And they either would have only given awards to Fellowship or instead they just waited for Return of the King, which is just like how on AFI they have Fellowship but none of the others because they're basically one movie. I don't think that's necessarily the thought process when Fellowship comes out. I think it is by the time Two Towers comes out. Yeah, that makes sense. I haven't watched them in long enough to say. I think Fellowship might be up there as my favorite one because I love when they're just happy in the Shire. I am exactly the same way. I love Fellowship for like the first 40 minutes. But Helm's Deep is really cool. It is. We should do Lord of the Rings. And by that, I mean, I'll just watch all of them and then talk at you about them. I mean, talk about sparse romance. (laughs) I know. It would be so much a no romance talk. Remember how Arwen probably held Aragorn as a baby? Because she is hundreds and hundreds of years older than him. What's incredible is that those movies expand Arwen's role. She has so little to do in the books that what looks like a character with nothing to do in the movies is actually someone who has been given extra stuff. I was listening to the Unspooled about Fellowship, and they were talking about how they were kind of like, oh, they gave her that scene where she has to save Frodo to make her like an action girl, and I'm just like, that was the only thing they could have done. If you've read the book, she does 
nothing. They were talking about how she was like, they didn't make her an interesting character in this. I was like, wow, she is so much better than Book Arwen, who is on the page for two seconds. That's not even getting into how, like, Eowyn gets to be cool because of semantics in Return of the King. She is cool in the books as a character outside of that. She is. But her, but her, like, great badass moment is semantics-based. It is, and also a reference to Macbeth. Sure. Macbeth feels like it's got some, like, weird arcane magic elements to it, because of, like, the whole cesarean of it all. Yeah. Whereas, like, no man can kill me, is like, I'm a woman, stab! Tolkien says that when he read Macbeth for the first time, he thought that it would be a woman to kill him, based on the phrasing, and it annoyed him when it was untimely ripped from my mother's womb, which does have a creepier ring to it, but that's why he put it in the book. Let's talk about Chicago. Anyway, let's dive into the romances. So Mark, what are the two instances where you wrote down big lesbian energy? Uh, I assume it was the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie. (laughs) So uh, we'll talk about that when we get to our five points, Nick, that you have prepared. Yes. So in lieu of you guys constraining me with your type A constructs, um, I've decided to instead have us do it by picking out the five or five of the many romances that happen um, in Chicago. I am fascinated by this because there is almost no romance in this movie. But there's so many broken love stories. All right. I guess we could put it that way. Like, or I don't. We don't see any of the love, but we see all of the fallout. I think we should start with the easiest one to talk about, which is Roxy and Amos. He ain't no chic. That's no great physique. And Lord knows he ain't got the smarts. Or Roxy and Andy, as uh, Billy calls him. The commitment to an Amos and Andy joke is surprising. It works. Yeah, <laughs> I find I mean, it really funny. Yeah. Uh, so based off of what we get in backstory, Roxy and Amos basically got married too young and now live in a unhappy marriage. This is Roxy Hart played by Renee Zellweger and her husband Amos played by John C. Riley. A man who was born to be a sad clown. I love that they just took it all the way there and made him a clown when he sings Mr. Cellophane. Yeah, it's impossible to watch that sequence and be like, oh yeah, of course this guy would go on to be in Stan and Ollie as a silent film comedy sad sack. Yeah, so Roxy and Amos got married too young, and currently it seems that Amos is working really hard to provide Roxy with a life that she expects. I get the vibe that she came from more money than she has. She certainly at least has pretensions that way. Right. But I don't think she came from, like, real money, but she seems to expect Amos to give her at least a solid middle-class lifestyle, but he has to work really hard at it. And I do think, they talk about it in the court scene, but I do think there's resentment that he is not home on the part of Roxy. So, as the movie is starting, she is having an affair with Fred Casey. And we're told that she and Amos have not had sex in several months, and their relationship is no good. She has the great line when they're talking about how they're fooling around with each other, Fred and Roxy. She has the great line, if I found Amos in bed with someone else, I'd throw him a party. That's where their marriage is at. So when Amos comes home and discovers the dead body of Roxy's lover, 
his initial instinct is to cover for her and to go along with the story that she says and to take the fall for it as an attempt to protect her. She tells him that a man broke into the house and was trying to rape her, so she shot him. And when he came in, she'd covered the body so he couldn't see who it was. And he then tells the cops, oh, I saw him trying to attack my wife, so I shot him. It's self-defense. But then the cop is just like, his name is Fred Casey, and this is like, he sold us our furniture. This is no robber. And then immediately is able to put together the very obvious fact of at what happened. Point, at which point, Roxy starts yelling at him for being disloyal. She gets pissed. She winds up getting arrested. All of that happens in song, though. Right, it's, it's great. One of my favorite stagings is her on the piano with him in the chair mm-hmm. and the like divide between the on stage versus the real life moment as she's trying to reach out but can't leave the piano i really like that shot so roxy is arrested and amos actually is still trying to help her out despite now understanding that she was cheating on him and he is instrumental in the hiring of billy flynn played by richard Gere, to defend roxy in court he's really determined to help out roxy meanwhile is kind of like ready to move on and Ditch this loser. Roxy is basically holding on to the wedding until she's out of prison and then is ready to burn it down. That's where she's at. Because she knows, I think, that getting a divorce while in prison would not be great for her case. Especially since her case is almost entirely morally based at a time when women can be executed but aren't. She doesn't want to seem like the kind of super sinful lady that would make people say, Ah, throw out precedent and murder this lady. Burn her at the stake. No, they only do that to foreigners. Oh, yeah. Which we learn. Yeah. In the movie. That's a really sad scene. It is really sad. But it's really well done where they do, like, the, the disappearing act. Yeah. I love in this movie how they never talk about the fact that alcohol is illegal. But you know it. And so seeing a prison warden pull out a bottle of liquor and start drinking with her inmates, I find always so funny. Because liquor and jazz is the reason that Roxy is in jail. That's their go-to thing. And it's like, oh, so sinful, but everyone drinks. Which is a testament to how during Prohibition, rather than entirely eliminating the sale of alcohol, instead, millions of Americans just became criminals. Sounds about right. I mean, that's what happened. That's why it was ultimately a failure. Yeah. It led to the rise of organized crime because people were willing to just pay for illegal alcohol. And especially if you're doing one crime, then why not just do them all at that point? I mean, that's the thing. It's a gateway crime. Yeah. (laughs) I was about to say that. So Amos is helping out with the defense. Ultimately, Roxy decides that she needs to get more attention towards her trial because Lucy Liu has come in and is like the new exciting thing. So Roxy claims to be pregnant, which has Amos all excited. He's like, I'm the father. Let's go. This is so exciting. Until Richard Gere points out, wait a minute. You guys haven't been having sex. That can't be your kid. And John C. Riley is like, oh, wait, you're right. That is math. And so he decides he's going to divorce her. But then in court, through cross-examination, Billy then convinces him that the baby is his and Roxy will take him back. And John C. Riley is overwhelmed with joy! 
and <laughs> Roxy Renee Zellweger's face through that whole up and down of their <laughs> emotional roller coaster <laughs> is just so funny to watch because she's trying to maintain this calm demure face while she's knitting for the jury, but also balance looking with utter disgust at Amos and confusion at Billy Flynn. So after he gives the testimony that Amos will take Roxy back, they have a very awkward hug that the court reporters all eat up because they're fully bought into the love story of Roxy and Amos. And then basically they don't talk again for a while. He's the last one in the courtroom when she gets the verdict besides Billy. Because he's and just says like, He's like, yeah. hey, we're gonna have a baby. It's gonna be great together. And then she's just like, you idiot. There was never a baby. And then he leaves and that's it for their romance. And he never successfully gets his feelings validated by anyone ever. Well, because he's invisible to he's everyone. He's a sad clown. Yeah. He's Mr. Cellophane. A great song. I really don't, I was telling Mark that I really don't get why he's such a sad sack. Like, I know that's the character, but it's like the only unbelievable part of this movie to me. And I'm buying into the fact that there's a dreamland where they all perform on stage. And Queen Latifah's boobs are twice as big as they could ever be and humanly possibly to be. Except I think he's are. just a sad guy. Like, and really dumb. Yeah. Yeah, he's just an idiot but that got taken in by a scheming woman with good looks. Like women will do. Yeah, just like the women be doing. <laughs> <laughs> women be shopping. Because <laughs> Roxy is kind of portrayed in a way where she is the vamp that they cast someone who looks like a pure woman. At least based on the movie and the production I see, they cast someone like Renee Zellweger who has a face where, or an aura about her of like, oh, she's like the nice woman. She's Jerry Maguire. It's, right, it's Jerry Maguire. It's Bridget Jones. Right, to hide the fact that she is the vamp, like just as much, if not more so than Velma Kelly, who you cast someone like Catherine Zeta-Jones in the role. But then she basically m- married Amos as a meal ticket, taking advantage of a dumb man who she could fool around and screw around which is just fooling around without the dinner all right so that's our first romance what else do we have well we i mean the second one i guess was um fred and um roxy which doesn't go very far fred casely how could he be a burglar my wife knows him he sold us our furniture he gave us 10 percent off that All right, so Roxy's banging Fred, who is the furniture salesman. This is honestly a more compelling romance in a way, because it has a full, complete a emotional complete, arc. Yeah, a total arc. So he's a furniture salesman, and he tells Roxy that he's got connections at this jazz club, or as I call it, a den of sin. <laughs> and he's like, yo, girl, I can get you in with the jazz singers if you just uh, fool around with me a bit. And she's like, I'm in. And they start banging. I think it's, she also is interested in the banging part too. Oh, totally. She's not fully just doing this for the role. Like, that's a big part of it. But she also is clearly interested in that. She's not like an unwilling partner in the sex part too. She's very excited about that. Oh, totally. And when we see them at the start of the movie, they're at the jazz club watching... Velma Kelly perform, and then he's like, let's leave. And so they go back to her place, and they're boning, and then he gets up to go. And in dialogue, we find out that the scene where they meet at the beginning of the movie, 
is a few months before the scene where he gets up to leave. Yes. They've been boning together for a few months. It's exactly a month. Exactly one month, according to Nick. Yeah, because it's, she says it's a month after when Velma shot her husband. Oh, right. Yeah, because they are able to mark the night where they go to Onyx together because it's the night that Velma Kelly is arrested yeah. for murder. So he gets up to leave. He's like, ah, we're done here. It's been a nice time, but we're over, kid. And she gets very upset. She keeps asking, what about your connections? You were going to make me a star. And he's like, I have no connections. What are you talking about? Obviously, I have no connections in the jazz business. I'm a good upstanding man. I was just there to collect on a gambling debt from a trombone player. The most sinful of brass instruments. He basically is like, you're hot. Of course I lied to you. What did you expect? And he's like, don't make it harder just leave me alone and that's when she upset about his lying and his leaving pulls a gun from the dresser well first she like tries to start kissing him and get back together and he physically pushes her off and says if you touch me again i'll knock your lights out and that feels like the the last straw where she then pulls a gun and just shoots him three times but he does use like considerable force multiple times i mean i i don't know Sometimes I think that he could have gotten pretty intense with it, and he already had. So I understand where she's coming from, except for the murder part, which I I don't agree with, because we're not a murder podcast. This is an anti-murder podcast. I don't remember when we established this, but I firmly believe in anti-murder. It was vertigo. Yep, that was it. Are we pro-arson? Anti-murder. We're We're not on the record on arson. Ambiguous on every other crime. The only thing we're on the record for is we are anti-murder. Okay. It's good to know when I come on, like, what stances we have on these crimes. Is there an arson movie you want to talk about? I can pick one out. Do you think Mr. Incredible and Frozone were setting fires so that they could then go in and save people? We have no evidence that they weren't. Cool. Glad. We're just going to put that out into the world and see what happens with it. Do you think that Roxy knew Fred had a wife and family? No. No. She gets really upset. Yeah, I think that really pissed her off when the policeman shows her the picture in the Mm -hmm. wallet. I think that's the first moment where she feels any guilt about it. Right, because I think in her brain, she imagined Fred getting her onto the stage, and then the two of them have this life as she turns into a big star, and she's able to leave Amos. And what she discovers after his death is that he never really had any intention of that. No, he had no real feelings for her, and it seems that she actually developed real feelings for him, more so than she has for Amos, clearly. But that's the relationship that she needs to hang her defense on once she's put on trial for Fred's murder. Yeah. So, those are two relationships dealing with Roxy. I still don't really know where we're going after this. Well, the next one I was going to choose was Velma and her husband and her sister. Almost none of which is on screen. No, that's the point. The other ones are not on screen at all. And and one of them is completely made up, so get ready. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, we learned in backstory, Velma Kelly is a famous performer with her sister and her husband. And they are traveling around, and this all comes out in the song Cell Block Tango. They were a famous act. Velma Kelly goes out to get ice, and when she comes back, 
her sister and her husband are having sex, and she blacks out, quote-unquote, and by that I mean shoots them both. But I want to talk about the fact that her husband and sister thought that her getting ice would be enough time to have sex. Yeah, I mean, first of all, they're 69ing in, like, a super cool way, right? Because it's the spread eagle where he's holding her upside down, so that was pretty cool. But, I mean, why? that very little time to get that done. Yeah, especially if you're doing acrobatic sex. Yeah. Will, comment. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not really the movie, but it sure does happen. We see it in a way during Cell Block Tango. Sure. Well, good, good talk. <laughs> I'm just confused by this episode. What else can we talk about? This was not my idea to cover. Well, what else are we going to do? The five points of, like, shooting someone? We did it in National Treasure. <laughs> There was more in National Treasure than in this one. The problem is it's just so broken up. I mean, and so much of it is like about Amos struggling to be just a human rather than him being in a relationship with Roxy. And also there's a whole like romance of Roxy in love with herself as a performer, which wasn't one of the ones that I came up with. I mean, that's the real romance. That's a pretty solid one that I just came up with on the fly. That is true. So Zeta Jones kills her husband and that's the end of that. Yeah. Uh, and her sister, but her sister too. Do you sister. think they were fooling around together? Do you think there was some incest action before then? Sorry, hang on. Do we think? Do you think fooling? that all three of them fooled around ever? I have never seen the sister. I have no opinion on anything. Mark she does. comments. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, I think so. That's my my personal opinion. I okay. feel like Catherine Zeta Jones is really mad because they started going into it without her. So. She has been cut out of the thruple. Yeah. That's the problem. That's that's what I think it is. She was getting the ice to do like some ice play. And then they just started without her. Because they obviously were preparing because she was doing the spread eagle with him. So they've obviously been practicing. These are my comments. Okay. It sounds like you've thought about this a lot. I think I'm just trying to queer this movie more. Like, this I'm movie's just, very queer. I know. And I'm Wait trying till to make get it get to <laughs> relationship number five, which is my note, big lesbian energy. Oh, that's number four. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, then let's go to number four. Oh, there ain't no gentleman that's fit for any use. And any girl that touch your privates for a deuce. Number four is Matron Mama Morton and... Everyone? Well, yes, everyone, but mostly Velma Kelly. There is a strong relationship there. I mean, Queen Latifah is great in this movie. She is amazing. So you pointed out the other day that basically Queen Latifah was nominated for her supporting actress Oscar just for the song, When You're Good to Mama. But I think she's also quite good in the rest of the movie. I think she is good in the rest of the movie. I don't think it is good enough to get an Oscar nomination, except for the song. Agreed. That song performance is really quite incredible. It's probably the best performance in the movie. It is, without question. Yeah. That song is enough to get her an Oscar nomination. Just the way she performs the whole thing. And the dress. Oh my god, I love that dress. Her boobs are amazing. This is like the pre-removal of the boob tissue, so they're really voluptuous in this one. Last Holiday, I think, is post-boob tissue removal. I did not know this you, about Are you Queen aware Latifah? that Queen nope. Latifah got some boob removed? It was hurting her back. I did so, not know yeah, this. So she had to get it taken down. You can see why in this one. Yeah, it's a lot of boob. 
So, tell me about this relationship. So, I think that Velma Kelly shows up to jail and Mama is just fully smitten. And besides seeing it as a meal ticket, I think that you don't get the song Class, which is from the musical. There's a song where the two of them reminisce on... It's weird because Velma Kelly and Roxy are, like, the same age, but Velma Kelly sings a song like she's significantly older and it's just like oh people used to have such class and that's what bonds them together and you really get that vibe of these two women found kindred souls so it's worth noting they did shoot a version of class for this movie and it was released on the home video version but they decided to cut it because marshall didn't feel like it fit in the like just on that like dreamscape stage environment so he didn't think it made sense in the version of the thing that they put on screen yeah because roxy's not involved and all of the songs are basically because of roxy's presence so that makes sense that they weren't able to really work it in like it's roxy perceiving the world is what we get the songs from basically mr cellophane is the only one where she's not in the room for it and it's still about her right so like i said there is a version of class on the dvd it's probably on youtube i'll look it up i'll find it but yeah so just the whole prison vibe is very much like i don't know at the end mama is even wearing a suit in the audience of the velma and roxy show which i found to be a very interesting touch i mean i think the thing that we really wanted to point out was that matron mama morton doesn't have this relationship with roxy and it doesn't seem like she's that close to any of the other girls but she is very close with velma Mm -hmm. and not only because of the business relationship they're developing but i think that there's you know some romantic like both sides Mm-hmm. I don't think that's implausible. I think Matron Morton's relationship to Roxy is much more business than it is to Velma Kelly. Yes, definitely so. And it's fun to think about the two of them running off and Matron Mama Morton becomes the high-powered agent for Velma Kelly as a Hollywood star. So what's our fifth romance? Okay, so it's either <laughs> Billy Flynn and Miss Sunshine, played by Christine Baranski, or Billy Flynn gay, question mark? I don't care about expensive things, cashmere coats, diamond rings, don't mean a thing. All I care about is love. These are my romances. I like Billy Flynn and Miss Sunshine. I think that's a fun idea. Me too. This is us totally inventing things at this point. Well, there's no other... I mean, we could talk about the cell block tango, but that's pretty much it. And it's even less story than we get from Velma. Look, Billy Flynn and Miss Sunshine is funny to imagine the idea of the two of them sort of feeding each other's careers and building that way. That's what I got. (laughs) Mark? Comment? (laughs) I think that... Richard Gere and Christine Baranski would be the power couple that burned Hollywood to the ground. So I'm on board. Well, that one I'm not really that keen on. But what I think is interesting is just the... Was this not your idea? Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to add something. But the thing that I wanted to say is that I find it strange how Richard Gere plays the Billy Flynn... So, okay, there's a point in the movie where Roxy Hart attempts to get Billy Flynn as her lawyer. And she kind of uses like a flirtatious thing which is clearly a thing that she does generally like i mean she uses sex to get what she wants and then billy flynn says oh well now you've got that out of your system let's talk business give me five thousand dollars but he plays it in such a way that it's not only implied that of course all the girls like play this card with him but 
in a sense that like he's really not interested. And then they have a whole, I mean, the whole song about all he cares about is love, but he really, there's no romantic vibes I get from him at all. Which, Which I think is interesting, interesting because, because I take the all he cares about is love to be his presentation to the world, but we also know that that's not the reality. And if we take the notion that all the songs are in some way connected to Roxy's idea, that's the perception she has when she's first hiring him and bringing him on board. And then she learns, especially when Lucy Liu comes into the picture, that that's not actually the case. <laughs> this movie's ability to use juxtaposition of the song world and the real world is one of my favorite parts, for sure. I just love when during All He Cares About Is Love is the song starts and then you cut immediately to Richard Gere getting fitted for bespoke suits and getting in this fancy car. So you know, even before you actually have any dialogue from the character outside of the song, that the song is just completely bullshit. Right, exactly. And the movie does that really well. It does it with When You're Good to Mama. It does it with some of the other songs where they just completely contrast reality and the song world. And then they also have songs where they reflect real world very well. I was going to say the disappearing act, but that's not a song. There's just a drum roll. And some clapping. Yeah. All right. So is there anything else we need on the subject of the romance? Nope. That's, that's it for me. All right. Well, if you had to pick five points, what would you have done? I would have done the silly thing where we do just like breaking it down to absurdly small points in Roxy's romances. Eh, that's not my style, bud. That's the premise of the show. I know, but I want to have my own podcast today. (laughs) This this is about me inviting you onto my podcast. All right. You give the guests free reign. So then I decided to just go for it. And this is what happened. This is it. So, I mean, are we doing the part where we ask if it's believable? So we do find these romances, which may or may not appear in the text of the movie, believable or not. I think we can judge the believability of a romance outside the text because the relationship between Mama Morton and Velma Kelly is a 10 out of 10 believable. So let's actually talk about this. So we're taking all these romances into perspective and rating the movie on a 10 point scale where zero is totally unbelievable. 10 is totally 100% believable. Where would we put this movie? <laughs> like a three. Yeah. Or a two. A two. It's low. It's very low, but it's not trying to be real relationships. Sure. I could go with probably a two. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the unbelievable part to me is that every romantic relationship seems to end in murder. That's the thing. Which we just know isn't true. There's even the murder at the end where a woman shoots her husband and her lawyer right after they declare her guilty. Right. Like, apparently no relationship ends happily. They only end in cheating and murder. It's all murder. It's Chicago, folks. So that's basically a line three times in this movie. So if we just take, let's say, Roxy and Amos, are they dateable? No. Roxy's a murderer. Roxy's a murderer, and we are staunchly anti-murder, and Amos is an idiot. (laughs) So. (laughs) Which raises the real question of then, who would you date in this movie? Mama Morton. I think she would take very good care of me, and yet also exploit me. And I'm kind of into that, like that kind of turns me on a little bit, so. (laughs) I legitimately don't know, because I feel like the best guy is Amos, but he is a loser. See, I'm gonna date the prisoner that's super heavily made up that 
Ask Roxy if she's had Morton before. She's just so casual. She's got a cigarette. She's got her bright blue eyeshadow. And it's just like, ugh, I've been around the block a time or two. That's very your brand because that's me. <laughs> you can't see me right now, but that's exactly who I am. Well, you could also date Christine Baranski. Yeah. Who plays Mary Sunshine. Yes, that is her th- name. I don't think we would get along. I think that she, outside of her reporting, is a cutthroat bitch that is working her way through Chicago newspapers. I feel like I see that in her personality in the movie. Yeah, and is that not what gets you going, Will? I just think she's, like, way too into the, like, 20s Christian temperance movement. Alright, so I think that about does it for Chicago. Great movie. Great movie. Looking towards next week, uh, all work and no play makes Mark a dull podcaster. This relationship will be very interesting to discuss. We are talking about The Shining. Apparently we're going for a murder spree on our anti-murder podcast. Well, we have to make people know how we feel about it. It's our job to spread the word. We love the love, colon, we hate the murder. Exactly. That's our new podcast name. And we're okay with arson? Question mark? Arson TBG. (laughs) We haven't watched- Kidnapping? Maybe. Pillaging, now we're in business. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of other crimes that we have watched in movies, and have we made any moral judgments on other crime yet? My understanding is we never have. Let us know if you can think of something we should take a crime on. You can always reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at LoveTheLovePod, or email us questions or movie suggestions at LoveTheLovePod at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe. That really helps other people find the show. And that's really great. Last question before we go. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Moida. That's bad. You cannot tell people to murder. Oh, man. Dang. I already forgot. Um, sell furniture. All right. Yeah, that checks out. Nick? Mine would be always carry a knife. Interesting. Considering the knife that comes up in the movie is used for murder. There's not a lot in this movie besides murder. <laughs> You could also mysteriously become an announcer in other people's fantasies because Tay Diggs can get it. Uh, (laughs) I was going to say, just basically be Christine Baranski and have a gossipy newspaper job that you can use to get close to people and, and flirt with them a lot like she does with Richard Gere. And like a general life advice would be jazz and liquor. Not stay away from pro jazz and liquor. jazz and liquor. Yeah. All right. And pro-Christine Baranski, we're officially a pro-Christine Baranski podcast. I don't know if that's been made clear, but just so it's on the record. All right, there we go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.